My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website, hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. So welcome back. Um, we're, we are in our summer series, Summer on the Mount, right? So we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount the last few weeks. Um, last week, uh, we covered Matthew 5. We discussed Jesus and the law. And this week, we're going to be studying this passage together, Matthew 6, 1 to 18. Um, the title of today's sermon is Jesus and Religion. Jesus and Religion. Here's the main idea of this passage. Jesus did not come to abolish all religion. He came to abolish empty religion. Jesus did not come to abolish all religion. He came to abolish empty religion. Now, I just want to pause right here for just a second because there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about the word religion, right? So some of you, um, if you grew up in church, maybe you had like a, maybe you were triggered for a second whenever you heard the word religion. Um, And in fact, religion is one of those words that divides people. Right? People, a lot of people have a lot of views about religion. Uh, many Christians have been led to believe, and I heard this in my life, uh, that Jesus hated religion and that religion as a whole is a failed concept. Right? Maybe you've heard something like that before. Um, they say we should never use the word religion to describe what Christianity is. Other faiths are religions, right? Christianity is not. Um, You'll find plenty of articles out there and books and podcasts and other things uh, titled something like Jesus Against Religion or Jesus Hated Religion or uh, any number of other things like that. Now, whether or not that claim is actually true depends entirely upon your definition of the word religion. Um, If by religion you you think of self-righteousness or man-made efforts to earn God's pleasure through our actions apart from his grace? Well, then, of course, Christianity is not that at all. However, if by religion you mean the structure and disciplines that go along with the right practice of the Christian faith in the Christian gospel, then it's simply not true to suggest that Jesus was against religion. Jesus was against the wrong kind of religion. Jesus critiqued the religious practices of his day as empty and false. However, he did not suggest to replace them with a just as empty, ill-defined spirituality that has no standards or established means by which we express our devotion to God. In other words, Jesus cares how we express our faith as much as he cares that we have faith in the first place. It matters what we do. So if you find yourself feeling skeptical toward the idea that certain religious practices are mandated by God, you have to go here, you have to do this, um, you should understand that Jesus didn't like empty, hypocritical, or self-exalting religious practice any more than you do. However, the alternative to that is not no religious disciplines at all. It is the right practices done in the right ways and for the right reasons. And when we truly understand the right means, methods, and motives for religion according to the Bible, religion actually becomes a good thing. If you don't believe me, read James 1, 27. 
So Jesus did not come to abolish all religion. He came to abolish empty religion. So in defining from this passage what Jesus thinks about what true religion is, we must ask three all-important questions. There are always three, aren't there? Yes, three all-important questions. The first one is this. What are the means of true religion? What are the means of true religion? The Christian faith is practiced through what we call spiritual disciplines. These are the core religious expressions that shape the way we relate ourselves to God, that shape the way we outwardly express the inward faith that we have. There are several spiritual disciplines that the Bible promotes as being central to a healthy and thriving Christian life. For more on what all of the disciplines of the Christian life might be, I recommend a book by Don Whitney titled The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. Here, Jesus doesn't give us an exhaustive list, right? He's not out to tell us all of the spiritual disciplines that Christians should be practicing. Rather, he lists three ways that his Jewish listeners would have recognized as important religious practices that were common in their day, giving, praying, and fasting. These three were known to Jewish people. They were practiced widely. And I want you to notice that Jesus does not wipe away these practices as being unnecessary or bad. Right? Jesus doesn't say the hypocrites, the hypocrites, which are the Pharisees, that's who he's talking about, they practice fasting the wrong way, therefore you should not fast. No, he, that's not what he does. In fact, throughout this passage, he encourages the continued practice of giving, praying, and fasting for his followers. Now, the important thing is that he clarifies how these disciplines ought to be practiced in the right way, not that the, these practices in and of themselves ought to change. That's an important distinction I think we should make. And it's really significant for us that we're living in a day, and you, you all have experienced this, I know. We are living in a day where set forms of religious expression are seen as oppressive to true faith. Rituals and habits are often understood to be empty and void of emotional expression simply by existing. When people think religion, they think stoic faces, reciting set prayers, or singing monotone in Latin, right? That's what you think of when you hear the word religion. However, Jesus, being the religious man that he was, knew that this was a false assumption, right? The problem is not religion, at least not the religion that was being practiced here. The problem is the people practicing it. The problem is their means, their methods, and their motives. So these disciplines that he highlights here, these habits of faith actually serve to provide us with the space and conditions necessary for true faith to flourish. They push against our individualism that says we ought to be able to decide for ourselves how we worship God. And that's really the day and time we're living in. They provide direction for our emotions and a stability that frees us to express our emotions openly to God in safety. You can think of it like this. Disciplines are like the bumpers on a bowling lane that keep our minds and hearts moving in the right direction toward the right goals. And if we remove those, right, what happens? You end up in the gutter, right? It's not good. We need that direction because not only do we not worship as we should, we also don't even know how to worship God as we should. 
So for this reason, it's important to Jesus that we be people who keep all the spiritual disciplines that the Bible promotes. So let's talk about these three that Jesus lists here. First, Jesus wants his followers to be a people who give. He wants his followers to be a people who give. The Bible, Old Testament and New, is full of commands to care for the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized, and the foreigner through financial generosity especially. All right, not just through good, goodwill toward them, but also going out of our way to provide for their needs. Christians are called to personally give to those in need, to financially support their local church and its leaders through giving, and to help fund the mission of carrying the gospel to the nations with the resources we have at our disposal. But giving is not just about helping others. It's also an expression of faith that teaches us some important truths about God and his world. Through giving, we come to depend on God as the source and sustainer of all things. We learn that all that we have is from him to begin with, and it does not come to us by our own labors, but as a gift from his hand. We learn to trust him rather than in our own cleverness, skills, or efforts. And when we care for others, we demonstrate that we see God's image in them, that they are valuable and that they have equal dignity to us. When we support ministry in our local church and missions around the world, we demonstrate that our priorities are not on gaining more for our own pleasure, but on using what we've been given to advance God's kingdom in the world. Second, Jesus wants his followers to be a people who pray. In prayer, we are communicating directly with the living God. Prayer is not a performance for others, but it is a real interaction between us as individuals and a very real God who hears us. When we pray, we're not telling God anything he doesn't already know. Jesus makes that clear. We'll look at that in a moment. And we're not asking for anything that he does not already see that we need. Right? God doesn't need information from us. Rather, prayer serves as a, a way for us to commune personally with God, to our, align our hearts to the reality that he is the sovereign Lord, worthy of our trust and obedience. Prayer is not arbitrary, though. God uses our prayer as a real part of the way that he operates in the world. And God wants us, he invites us to pray to him. And third, Jesus wants his followers to be a people who fast. Now, I know for me, and probably for most of you in this room, this is probably the most neglected of the three disciplines in our lives. Fasting is the voluntary abstinence from certain activities for a predetermined length of time. In Jesus' day, fasting was, meant abstaining from food. Right? That's the common meaning of the word. That's how most people use it. Right? So when Jesus said fasting, he meant from food. Now, in our day, we have lots of things that distract us, and so you'll hear people taking a fast from media or from their phone or from whatever. A list of things might be a distraction to you. That's, that's okay, too. But it's important to note that fasting primarily means food. People will sometimes fast for at set times throughout the year, so maybe on a particular holiday or um, at a particular interval, maybe every three months you fast, or once a month you fast, or once a week you fast. Um, people will also fast, especially in times of major transition in their life, crisis, or when a major life decision is looming. In fasting from food, 
A person is declaring that their dependence upon God is greater than their dependence upon food or water, things our body needs to survive. In other words, the one fasting is intentionally taking that time to seek God's presence in their devotional life. And every hunger pang is a reminder of the even deeper need that we have for God. We need him more than we need food. So I just want you to think for a moment in illustrating this about the early days of a dating relationship. Now, if you've ever been there, you know how this works, right? There's one, there's usually the way this works is there's one person, typically the man doesn't have to be, but let's just say for the sake of this, that it's the man who's pursuing the other one. Right now, early on in the relationship, you're kind of getting to know each other. And usually this way this plays out is he really wants her attention and she's not sure if she should give it to him. And so she being in control, having the upper hand in the relationship, she gets to set certain boundaries about how those things go forward. She can say things like, all right, well, if you want to take me on a date, it has to be a real date, right? You can't just invite me over to your apartment to watch TV, right? Like you have to actually take me out to dinner, buy my meal, right? She gets to set those kinds of boundaries. She gets to say, look, and as most of you single people should do, if you want to date me, you have to come to church with me. Like, that's one of the stipulations, right? Or if you want to see me, you have to go to this place or do this thing or whatever, right? And, and that's, that's just the way it works, right? If you're the one pursuing the other, you don't have the upper hand, right? You're, you're at their mercy. And if you're the one being pursued, you have, the, you have the upper hand in the relationship, right? You get to set those boundaries. You all know how it works, right? And so the point is this, that she... The one being pursued gets to set the channels, the methods, and the moments of when that communication can happen, right? If, if he sends her a text, she can choose not to respond. If he calls her, she can choose not to answer. If he asks her on a date, she can choose to say, no, not this weekend. Maybe next weekend. Try again, right? She has that power. Now, this is a poor analogy, admittedly, of what I'm describing here with our relationship with God. In reality, right, God pursued us first because we were going away, but that doesn't mean we have the upper hand in the relationship, right? He's God. This, the whole relationship that exists, it exists because he decided that he was going to be merciful to us. He was going to demonstrate his grace to us, and that means that God has the upper hand in the relationship, Right? He did, he pursued us out of, his, out of his mercy, out of his good pleasure toward us. And because of that, he gets to decide how the communication in the relationship is established. He gets to decide and determine what channels we use to meet him, to see him, and to get to know him. It's as if God is saying this to us. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know you personally and intimately. But... Here's how you can do that. If you want to see me, in other words, here's where I'll be waiting for you. And if we start to think that freedom in the spirit, we, people abuse that term, freedom in the spirit, means that we can express our faith in whatever way we see fit, then what we're going to do is we're going to invent our own means, we're going to invent our own methods for that expression. We'll end up missing out 
on all that God wants to show us about himself through these means, right? There's a reason why giving, praying, and fasting are the means that God wants us to use to relate to him. He did that on purpose. He wants to teach us something about himself. He's trying to show us who he is and what he's like. It's actually a gift to us. And in fact, if we go the other way, if we start making up our own ways of relating to God, what will end up happening is this. We'll end up worshiping a God that looks a lot, a lot less like the God of the Bible and looks a lot more like me. It will be a God that we have designed. A God who wants me to spend my money on myself. A God who wants me to spend more time not praying to him, but thinking about myself and my own problems. And a God who wants me to indulge in more of my desires and not fewer of them. When we know so little of God, we will love and enjoy so little of him as well. And that is why God has used, appointed these means as the way that he wants us to relate to him and express our faith in him. So the question is this, are you using the right means in your relationship with God? Are you using the right means in your religious expression? Jesus didn't have to, he didn't have to have this conversation, right? He didn't live in a day where people thought, Jesus was against religion, right? He had that understanding, or his listeners had that understanding. But for us, we need to start there. Let's just focus on these three. Are, are we generously giving? Do we spend serious, focused time in prayer? And, I mean, look, don't ask me this question. When was the last time you fasted? When was the last time that was a thing? Have you ever fasted before? So if your spiritual life is feeling shallow or unsatisfying, maybe the problem isn't your desire. Maybe the problem isn't that, you're, that you don't want to express your faith. Maybe the problem is the means that you're using to express it. What are the means of true religion? And that leads us to the second question, which Jesus is adamant to answer here. What are the methods of true religion? So here's what I mean by that. If the means are what you do in your relationship with God, your methods are how you do it, how you go about it. The method and the means are equally important in Jesus' eyes. He doesn't want us to just check boxes, right? If he wanted us to just check boxes, the Pharisees, they were set. They checked all the boxes. And yet Jesus looks at them and goes, that's not religion. So the problem is the method that they're using. The Pharisees did all the right things outwardly. They gave, they prayed, they fasted, they went to the temple to worship. They did all of the stuff. They kept all the disciplines. But in the end, their religion was just as empty as the pagan Gentiles because it was done with the wrong heart. Empty religion is this. It is when we worship the wrong God or it, when we worship the right God in the wrong ways. And that's what the Pharisees were guilty of. And their religion was just as empty as the next pagan Gentile. Their religion was performed. It was done in hypocrisy. I love this word hypocrite in the Greek because of what it means. The word hypocrite means something like stage actor. And that's the word that they would use to describe people who performed on a stage. And the picture is this. In in this day and age, when Greek actors would get up on stage, they always wore masks in their performances, right? They didn't have stage makeup, they had stage masks. And so 
what Jesus is saying is this. A hypocrite is someone who puts on the mask, who plays a part, who is performing, particularly not just that they're fake, but they're performing for the sake of others so that they'll be seen and recognized for their performance. The Pharisees were hypocrites because their public displays of religious faith were performances meant to depict themselves as pious and godly. They were playing a part, the part of religious elite. And in reality, they worshiped themselves more than they worshiped God. And this is seen in their methods. Okay, so Jesus begins by showing his followers that we should give secretly. That's the method of giving. We should give secretly. He says this in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, implying you will give to the needy, right? I want you to give to the needy. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, I want you to imagine this for a second. I want you to imagine somebody comes in here and they say, I want to give to your church. And they got a trumpet player blasting the horn and they're, they're, they're calling it out, right? Like, hey, look at his giving. Look, look, he's giving, guys. Do you see it? Look how much money he's giving to them. Isn't he so generous? That's what the Pharisees were doing. I mean, literally, can you get any more pretentious than that? Blasting a trumpet to announce your giving. They wanted their giving to be done loud and proud so that everyone would see their generosity and go, oh, wow, look how generous he is. And I want you to contrast this with how Jesus says giving ought to be done in verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's how secretive it should be. So rather than blowing a trumpet to announce our giving, we ought to make our contributions discreetly. In other words, look, it's not wrong if people know that you give. That's not Jesus' point here. The point is that we should never go out of our way so that others know we have given. Right? We shouldn't be talking about it. We shouldn't be announcing it. We shouldn't be pointing at it going, oh, yeah, well, look at my bank account. Look how much I gave this month. Oh, did you see that? I'm so sorry. Right? Like, no, we're, you should never go out of your way so that other people see your giving should be done in, with discretion. Whether anyone sees or no one ever knows, our giving should remain the same. I'm going to give the same amount whether there's a trumpet blasting or whether nobody knows. Nobody ever finds out. That's the method of giving. And Jesus goes on. He says something similar with prayer. He says that we should pray privately and plainly. And in verse 5, Jesus describes prayer like this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, imagine this again, right? Imagine you walk into my apartment one day, we're going to have dinner, and I'm just standing there praying out loud like this, Lord God in heaven, would you just shower your blessing? Oh, did you? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were there. Right? Like, that's the kind of performance that they were putting on. 
Now notice here, Jesus is not talking about corporate prayer. So that's something different. Like whenever we all come together and pray and someone prays out loud, Jesus doesn't have that in mind. Jesus is talking about private prayer. These guys were praying about their own personal lives publicly, out loud, in front of everyone in the synagogue. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be heard. Prayer should be, private prayer should be just that, private That's why Jesus encourages his followers in verse 6 to pray in isolation. He says, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Private prayer should be kept private. And Jesus modeled this himself. When he wanted to pray, what would he do? He would go off and be alone. In the garden, he left the disciples sleeping. They should have been praying, but he, he left them to go pray on his own. He would often be missing. People would be like, where's Jesus? And eventually they figured it out. Oh, he's probably off praying somewhere, right? Jesus modeled that kind of private prayer because well, it wasn't a performance. He was genuinely praying to God. He was, he was talking to his father and he wanted to do that alone. And then Jesus goes on in verses seven and eight to say that we shouldn't pray like the Gentiles, Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, thinking they'll be heard for their many words. Have you ever heard, I know you guys have, have you ever heard somebody pray and most of it is just like this spiritualized nonsense? And you're like, I don't even know what they're saying right now. Like there's just like, it's just, it's just word vomit. Like they're just praying all this stuff and they're, throwing out all these Bible terms and all these words. And you're like, do you even know what you're saying right now? And that's, that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. And I know that I am prone to think this, that longer and more eloquent prayers are somehow more spiritual, right? We can fall into that trap. And Jesus definitely tells us that that assumption is not true. Now, we should understand that God already knows what we need before we ask him. He is not impressed with our big words. He's not impressed with many words. Rather, we should pray plainly. And the application of this truth is not to avoid prayer altogether. Oh, God knows what I need. I don't need to pray about it. No, we're commanded to pray to God, but we're commanded to pray plainly. And Jesus provides the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer often. You've probably seen this in picture frames in your grandma's house or in churches before. Um, This is the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer in verses 9 through 13. Now, Jesus is not saying when you pray, you must say these words. No, Jesus is giving an example. When you pray, pray like this. This is the model. This is the, the essence of what our prayer should be. And I wish, like we could do a whole, I've, I've seen whole sermon series done on the Lord's Prayer, um, and there's so many good things in here. But I just want to point out a couple things um, for the sake of time. So in my English translation, which is the ESV, this prayer is only 51 words, 51 words. I would imagine, I didn't count, I should have. In the Greek, it's probably less because we use more words in the English. So probably less than 50 words here is the model prayer. And in that small of a space, Jesus encourages us to address God with reverence, right? There's, a, there's an address to God. There's a prayer for the advancement of God's kingdom in the world. There's a request for his provision for our needs. There's a plea for forgiveness, and there's a request for protection from temptation and from evil. So the point is this. Longer prayer is only better if it's filled with more substance. The best prayers and the best prayers 
I don't know if that's a word or not, but it is now. The best prayers and the best prayers are those who can say much with few words. Why? Because God already knows what we need, so you might as well speak to him plainly. Now, I'm not encouraging you to pray for less time. That's not the application. You go, oh, oh, I can reduce my prayer time from 10 minutes to two minutes, right? That's not the point. And Jesus isn't encouraging that either. No, we should want to pray more. But the point is this. I'm encouraging you to avoid filling up your prayer time with repetitive words and phrases that sometimes we even forget what they mean. That is not any more pleasing to God than a 51-word prayer that is plain, simple, and to the point. God is not impressed with big words or poetic ramblings as much as we might be sometimes. He already knows what you want to ask, so just ask for it. And if you don't even know how to say it, that's okay. He already knows what you want to say. Okay, Jesus goes on to say something similar about fasting. Notice what the hypocrites did there in verse 16. Oh, sorry, hold on. We should fast quietly. That's, skip that. All right, we should fast quietly. That's the principle here. And notice how the Pharisees would fast here. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. So what they would do is they would intentionally not bathe themselves or do anything when they were fasting because they wanted everyone to see their tired faces, their pale complexion. They haven't been eating. I'm so hungry. I'm so spiritual. I haven't been eating. I've been fasting for days. And in verse 17, Jesus makes his point clear. Take a shower and wash your face when you're fasting, right? Like, don't, don't try to make yourself look hungry. Keep your fasting quiet. Now, it doesn't mean that no one can ever know if you're, I've heard this before. If anyone ever knows if you're fasting, then it's lost its effect. No, that's not Jesus's point here, right? Like, if I, if I skip dinner, how is my wife not going to know, right? Like, I'm just going to sit there and fake eat? Like what? No, like she's going to know that I'm fasting. But the point is, don't go out of your way to let other people know you're fasting. Don't go out of your way so that people see that you're hungry. Oh, I can't eat that pizza on Wednesday night because I'm fasting. No, just don't eat the pizza and don't say anything, right? Like that's, that's the point. Don't go out of your way. If, if they know that you're fasting, that's okay. Somebody asks you point blank, hey, why aren't you eating? Uh, I'm, uh, I don't want to lie, right? Like, no, you can tell them you're fasting. But if they don't know, that's even better, right? It's a private matter between you and God. And do you ever get in those situations where people tell you things you didn't ask? You know, I always think, <laughs> I heard an amen over here. Um, I, I always just think about those people who like working out as their whole identity, you know, like going to the gym, that's their whole identity. And they always want you to know that they went to the gym, right? They always want you to know. You come in, every conversation, somehow it circles back to that. It's like, you come in and you're like, oh, I'm tired today. And they're like, yeah, I had a killer workout this morning. Like, okay, I didn't ask that, right? Like, um, or they always come into work wearing their workout clothes and they're like, I need to change here. You know there's a shower at the gym, right? Like you just wanted me to see you in your workout clothes so I would believe that you went to the gym today, right? Every conversation circles back to that. Somehow protein powder is connected to everything in their life. I don't get it, right? Like 
and they're telling you about their workout routines, like no matter what, they're going to find a way to let you know that they go to the gym and that that is their thing, right? And that's, you know, that's fine if that's your thing, right? And it's always, I got to go to GNC on my way home. I got to do this, right? Like it's always connected somehow. Um, and if that's your identity, look, that's okay. I, I'm probably calling you out because I feel bad about myself for not going to the gym, okay? But the point is this, right? They, there are people, and, and we're all that kind of person about something, that we go out of our way to mention something that we're passionate about, right? There's the sports people and there's the, all of those things, right? That's always connected to that because it's very important to them. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were like with their religion. They wanted to go out of their way to make sure that you knew they were doing their religious disciplines. You didn't have to ask them. They would tell you they're fasting. You didn't have to ask them. They're going to blow a trumpet to let you know they're giving. You didn't have to ask them. They're going to shout their prayers out publicly, right? They wanted you to know. It was all a performance done for the viewing of others. They took their personal relationship with God and they made it entertainment for the world. And it made Jesus sick to see that. And probably you too. You're probably sitting there going, man, that just doesn't sit right with me, right? Like, I would not like that person. And it's one thing, and I want to make this clear. It's one thing to talk about your faith openly, especially with unbelievers. Like, it's not wrong for you to talk about the fact that you pray or the fact that you practice religious disciplines. That's a good thing. People should know that you practice your faith. It's good for non-Christians or fellow believers to know what our personal spiritual lives are like. Um, and it's good that we have examples of people who show us how to pray, how to fast, how to give. Right? We, we have much to learn about these things from others. It's not always wrong for people to see our religious disciplines. But what the Pharisees were doing was something else. It was different because it was not done in order that others would, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, see our good works and glorify God. No, it was done as a witness. It was not done as a witness to the truth about God. Instead, it was done so that the Pharisees would receive their reward. It was so that others would see their good works and praise them for what they were doing and say, oh man, look how religious they are. In other words, using the right means, the right methods of true religion flow out of the right motivations. We'll get to that in a second. But I just want to say also that it's easy for me, I'll speak for myself, to look at the Pharisees and go, man, what hypocrites, right? Like, what a performance they were putting on. But man, I'll just say I am prone to this. I am prone to this. I am prone to practicing my faith for others because of the pressure that I feel because I'm a pastor or the pressure that I feel because other people know that I'm a Christian or the pressure that I feel because there are other believers in this room that are depending upon me. And all of those social pressures can push me to do the right things, but I'm not really doing them for the right reasons. I'm actually doing them so that you or others will see them and think I'm religious and think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And that what makes me, when I do that, that makes me just as bad as one of those Pharisees. Because I might not blow a trumpet, I might not stand on a corner and shout my prayers, but hey, I want you to know that I'm praying. I want you to know that I'm giving. I want you to know that I'm fasting. And the heart behind those two things is really not that different. 
And so that leads us to this third question, which is the key question. What are the motivations? What's the difference between the Pharisees' empty religious practice and the true religious practice that Jesus was promoting is this. At the heart of the matter is this. What are the motivations? So we've seen what to do. We've seen how to do it. And now we must ask why. And maybe you're wondering that. Why do all of this? What do we hope to gain? And this reminds me of a saying I've heard several times before, and it's just as true here. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It all comes back to what's happening in here. And that's where Jesus is primarily focused. That's what he's getting at here. So notice how he opens the discussion in verse 1. This is his preface to what he's about to say. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward. Why, what does in order to be mean? It means why. Why are you doing it? You're doing it in order to be seen by others. The, those are the key words that answer the why question. Why did the Pharisees do what they did? Why did they give? Why did they pray? Why did they fast? They did all of it in order to be seen, in order to be on display before others. And that's the repeated phrase here. Look in verse 2, 5, and 16, all side by side. Jesus is talking about when you give, don't blow a trumpet. Why? Because the hypocrites do this, that they may be praised by others. That's the why. And then in verse 5, when you pray, don't stand and shout out your prayers, because the hypocrites do that, that they may be seen. That's the why. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Three times Jesus repeats it. What's their motivation? Their motivation is to be seen to be seen as religious. They want to be known as religious. They don't want to be religious. That's not their concern. They want other people to think they're religious. So do you see the pictures? Why did the Pharisees give and pray and fast? So that they can know God more intimately and praise him more fully? No. They did all of that so that others would see them and praise them for their religious efforts. And do you see how wrong that really is? And that's why Jesus so despised their religious practices. Not because religion in and of itself is bad. Not even because the things they were doing were bad. In fact, they were doing good things. But because of the reason why they were doing it. What did they hope to gain? They took what was meant for the praise and glory of the Father, and they turned it into a performance for their own praise before others. If their religion was meant to exalt themselves, then who was their God? Their God was the one that they were worshiping. It was themselves. They had made themselves their own God. They lived to exalt themselves and to receive the worship and praise that was due to God alone. Because the reality is, if any of us do any of these things for the right reasons, we only do them because God was gracious to us. When people see giving and praying and fasting, they should think, wow, God actually wants us to have a relationship with him? They should not think, wow, look how religious that person is. 
And that's why Jesus says in verses 2, 5, and 16, this is the next slide, that repeated phrase again. They received their reward. They received their reward. They received their reward. The only good thing that will come for the Pharisees is the shallow praise and admiration that they receive from others, which is the thing they really wanted. And that is a passing, empty, and ultimately unsatisfying reward. The Father has nothing more to offer those who steal his worship for themselves other than the empty praise of people. And so if that's what you really want, you can have it. That's what Jesus is saying. But I promise you, it will not be enough. It will not be enough. Now I want you to imagine for a second here, a father and his daughter. And she's getting ready to go off to kindergarten for the first time. She's going to be away at school. And, you know, he wants to make sure that she's going to be well-behaved, that she's going to do everything she's supposed to do. And so he tells her, all right, look, if you get a good report, I, I'm going to check with your teacher every quarter. I'm going to check with your teacher. I'm going to call in to see how you're doing. If I get a good report, then there's going to be a reward waiting for you. Right? And he's trying to motivate her to, to do the right thing. And she does it, right? She, she listens. She raises her hand when she talks. She doesn't get out of her chair. All of the things that the teachers want you to do, right? She followed all the rules. And every quarter, she, her dad would get a good report about her. Of course, he was proud of her. And so the reward that he would give her, he wouldn't buy her stuff, right? Like, I mean, you could, but he wanted to do something special for her. And so he would take her out to the movies or go get ice cream with her or take her to do something she wanted to do. When summer came, he would take her to the, the amusement park if she had a good year, and all of these kinds of things. That's, that's the kind of rewards that he held out for his daughter. Now, when she grew up one day, and she looked back on her childhood, what do you think she's gonna cherish about all of those things that her father did for her? You think it's gonna be the roller coaster ride? It's probably outdated by that point or the ice cream that she doesn't even remember what flavor she got, or the movie that she's not sure which one they saw. No, of course, the thing that she's going to cherish, the real reward, was not all the stuff that she got. It was actually just spending time with her father. And she's going to look back on that, like probably many of you do, if you look back on somebody who you really loved and looked up to and admired, when they just took the time to take you and do something fun and spent time with you, probably the thing you cherish the most now is the fact that you had that time to spend with them. The fact that, that your parent or that person you were looking up to loved you enough that they wanted to take their time out of their busy schedule to spend it with you. And I want you to just contrast that with the shallow rewards of empty exaltation that the Pharisees were looking for. Jesus repeats a phrase three times in verses 4, 6, and 18. He says, if you do it the right means, the right method, for the right reasons, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Three times he repeats that phrase after each discipline. And this is the picture of what Jesus is describing. You might ask yourself, well, what rewards are you talking about, Jesus? 
What's the real reward of true religious devotion to God? Is it a mansion in glory? I mean, yeah, that's good. Is it an eternity in paradise? Yeah, that's good. But I don't think Jesus has stuff in mind here. I think what Jesus is telling us is that the greatest gift we could ever receive is the greatest thing in existence, which is God himself. That is the reward that he is holding out to those who practice these things in the right ways and for the right reasons. We receive the honor of knowing, loving, and worshiping the sovereign, wise, sustaining, good, and powerful God who was gracious toward us in our sin. To know that he wants to give us his time and attention. Just imagine that. The God of the universe who created everything, we are a speck of dust to him. And yet he wants to give us his time and attention. And he invites us to do it. He says, if you want to know me, this is what you can do. And yet, the Pharisees and sometimes us have the nerve to take those things that God has meant to exalt himself, to drive us into a relationship with him, and we use it for ourselves. We use it to make us look good. We use it to feel good about ourselves. And so today or tomorrow when you open your Bible or when you sit down to pray, or when you prepare your next giving, or when you plan your fasting, because all of you are going to do that probably <laughs> tomorrow, you'll be like, I need to fast. Um, and when you do that, you should do that. And when you do that, I would just encourage you to stop for a moment before you do anything and ask yourself, why? Why are you doing it? Is it mere obligation? Because you think you should? Is it because you think you owe something to God? because of what he's done for you? Are you doing it as I often do it to feel good about myself? Man, I really want to check that box off today. Or are you doing it so that you may know the Father who sees and knows all things, the God whom you have entrusted with your whole life and your whole being? Are you seeking after him? And if that's the heart behind your means and your methods, your reward, it won't always be immediately apparent. I'm not saying tomorrow when you open your Bible, all of a sudden, it's going to be like, oh, I know God now. No, it won't always be immediately apparent. But we can know from Jesus' words here that if we do that, the reward is absolutely assured. He will reward us. And he will reward us with the gift of knowing and loving and worshiping him. And that is the greatest gift we could ever receive. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.